Hello, and welcome to a special edition of the Ibis World podcast. I'm Taylor Palmer. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about the state of the healthcare sector. Now, we recorded a few weeks ago before the Senate healthcare vote on the Better Care Reconciliation Act. And while that bill didn't pass in its current form, much of the analysis that we spoke about in regards to that bill is still extremely prescient. Any future healthcare legislation efforts from the Republican Party are likely going to incorporate parts of this bill in a less severe form. So everything we spoke about previously in regards to that bill is still important, but there are some new developments that are also worth updating on. So stay tuned after our conversation about the Better Care Reconciliation Act, and we'll have Jack Curran in the studio once more to talk about where the healthcare sector is today. Hi, my name is Taylor Palmer, and I'm here with the Ibis World podcast. Joining me in the studio today is Jack Curran, a healthcare expert here at the company. And now is as good a time as ever to have Jack come in and talk a little bit about the industry impacts of what's going on in the healthcare sector right this moment. So a motion to proceed on the Better Care Reconciliation Act, the Senate health care bill, was taken on July 25th and with a majority of senators agreeing to go forward and talk about what amendments to add to the bill before voting on it officially, we now have an idea of what could be happening to the American healthcare sector moving forward. There are a few pretty disparate ways that this could shake out. Uh, full repeal is indeed still on the table, and there are a number of amendments that could be made to this bill. But for the most part, the bones of it are probably going to stand as we expect them to be. We're going to bring in Jack to talk a little bit about what the potentialities are moving forward for the healthcare sector based on the bill we have now and also the potential of a full repeal. So before we bring Jack in, we're just going to talk a little bit about how we got to where we are now. So healthcare has really been at the forefront of the Republican legislative agenda since the Trump administration came into office. A few months ago, Paul Ryan and the GOP in the House put forward the American Healthcare Act. Now, the AHCA was put forward kind of as a way to add some market reforms to the healthcare industry. So by relaxing some of the regulations put forward by the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare as many people know it, the AHCA sought out to find ways to make premiums lower and deductibles lower and offer what was considered increased access to healthcare. Not necessarily boost coverage itself, but boost access by allowing health insurers to change around the way that they can price and what is and is not mandated to be covered in the health insurance market. Now, ostensibly, this was to entice people that had not been brought into the market into the market by offering them plans that are more suited to their individual needs. Now, the bill in its original form didn't quite make it over the goal line, but then the MacArthur Amendment was added. Now, this amendment offered increased flexibility to states to opt out of several key Obamacare regulations. The MacArthur Amendment allowed for states to apply for waivers that said that insurers no longer had to cover what we now know as the 10 essential health benefits, and it also gave states the flexibility to allow insurers to opt out of offering coverage to those with pre-existing conditions. Now, this amendment helped get the bill over the goal line and into the Senate. So what used to be called the American Health Care Act has now been known in the Senate as the Better Care Reconciliation Act. Now, the Senate largely promised that they would make some pretty broad-scale changes to the bill. But so far, what we know as the Better Care Reconciliation Act is largely iterative of the American Health Care Act as we knew it in the House. Most of the changes that have been made in the Senate have been pertaining to rolling back some of the expansion efforts in Medicaid brought on by the Affordable Care Act. 
Now this is the bill that was voted on and a motion to proceed has been passed and now the American healthcare system is in flux and the future of it is pretty uncertain. So now we're gonna bring in Jack onto the mic to talk a little bit about what some of the industry impacts of this bill are and talk a little bit about the potentialities of where we are right now in the vote. Jack, can you tell us a little bit about what some of the facets of this bill are that are gonna have the largest impacts on the healthcare sector? Sure, Taylor. I would say the most important aspect of this bill on the healthcare sector is the rolling back of Medicaid expansion. Under the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, 31 states and Washington, D.C. expanded Medicaid and greatly increased the number of people who are enrolled under Medicaid. Yeah, with the expansions in Medicaid based on ACA coverage, the U.S. saw an increase in the government-enrolled sector by over 14 million people. So between these 31 states, we saw a, a pretty wide range in enrollment differential, starting as low as 10.4% in Alaska, all the way up to a 50% increase in Medicaid coverage in Oregon. On average, between these 31 states and Washington, D.C., we've seen the Medicaid enrollment population grow on average by 28.3%, which is pretty incredible. Exactly, and that's been huge for healthcare providers. Medicaid and Medicare provide a huge portion of revenue for most healthcare industries, especially for industries like hospitals, primary care physicians, and any other inpatient healthcare providers. These industries typically receive more than half of their revenue from Medicare and Medicaid. Now, if this bill is proposed to scale back some of those expansion efforts, how will that affect those industries? Well, as Medicaid enrollment falls under this bill, revenue for those industries is going to sharply decline. Healthcare industries typically see, on average, about 20% of revenue coming from government insurance, including Medicare and Medicaid. And that includes, on the low end, more specialty industries like substance abuse clinics, things that not necessarily everyone's going to be using. So revenue dropping for those industries makes a whole lot of sense. If the patient totals are dropping, then obviously there's going to be less reimbursement. Is there going to be any other sort of impacts based on a decrease in this specific population of insured? Well, in theory, under this bill, those patients that are no longer covered by Medicare could technically receive care through a private insurer or pay out of pocket to healthcare providers. If that worked out perfectly, then revenue would stay the same or increase for these industries, and with that, profit would actually increase because they're receiving a larger share of their revenue from health insurance options that carry higher reimbursement rates than Medicare. So traditionally, private insurers reimburse healthcare providers back at a higher rate than government insurers do. Yes, absolutely. But the problem is private insurance enrollment will likely fall under this bill. And why is it that you think that private insurance figures aren't going to make up for this difference? As you mentioned before, under this bill, states are able to change what health insurers are required to cover. Some states will give insurers the option of covering fewer pre-existing conditions, and with that, we'll see premiums increase for people that have pre-existing conditions and really across the board. So if insurers are offering these options of more bare-bones plans, if insurers are able to say they're not going to cover X, Y, and Z, and X, Y, and Z might be some of the more expensive things to cover and some of the more discretionary. For example, in terms of the essential health benefits, this could include things like ambulance services or contraceptive and reproductive services as well. So if someone wants to opt out of being covered for these things, insurers are going to be able to cover them at a lower price. 
So therefore, the premiums are going to be lower on these plans specifically. But this is going to have a pretty detrimental effect on the plans that are actually covering all these things, aren't they? Yes. Well, the problem is that under the Affordable Care Act, where everyone with private insurance was required to have a plan that was ACA compliant and covered all of these essential health benefits, those plans were being subsidized by the younger, healthier people that didn't necessarily need that coverage, paying into the plan and keeping premiums relatively low for everyone included. But under this new plan, if people are opting out of these plans and going for the more bare-bones coverage and not the ACA-compliant plans, only the people who really need that coverage are going to be paying to be on those plans. And because of that, the premiums are going to increase for those plans. So these new plans are going to be made up of a pool of people that are generally in an older age bracket and are generally sicker and more expensive to insure. So this is going to push up premiums in that bracket very specifically. And without the individual mandate pushing people in the healthier brackets into these similar plans, there's no one to subsidize the treatment of these riskier and costlier people to insure. Yes, and because premiums will be higher for those people, and there is no longer going to be the health insurance mandate that requires all people to have health insurance of some sort, a lot of people will opt to just not have coverage. And because of that, you're going to see healthcare expenditure and revenue for healthcare providers falling across the board. If people don't have coverage, they're not likely to receive healthcare services. The whole idea behind the Affordable Care Act and requiring everyone to have health insurance was the idea that if you have insurance, you will use it. And that was bolstered even further by the fact that there were pretty generous reimbursement rates for things like preventative care that encouraged people to go to the doctors even for things that they might not have traditionally done. Of course, and you can see that in revenue for healthcare providers, specifically looking at primary care physicians and hospitals. Revenue sharply increased starting in about 2012 when the Affordable Care Act went into effect. And according to IBIS World Estimates, total health expenditure figures have grown at an annualized rate of 4.1% since 2012. This is obviously a pretty high number. Can you tell me a little bit about what you would expect to happen to this figure moving forward with this bill? Well, it will likely continue to increase, but at a much slower pace. No matter what, health expenditure is going to go up, prices are still increasing for healthcare services, advances in technology are still making some procedures cheaper while others more expensive using more advanced equipment. But with a smaller insured population, demand for healthcare services is going to decline, and therefore that strong growth we've seen in healthcare expenditure will slow down. I think what's important to note about healthcare expenditure is that while a lot of people may look at this as we're spending a lot on healthcare in this country, it's important to think about the fact that the healthcare sector employs about a fifth of the U.S. economy. Yeah, and it's also been one of the fastest growing sectors in the country over the past few years. Exactly. So that a strong growth in healthcare expenditure is good for the U.S. economy. So the healthcare sector is not only important to the economy, but it's growing in importance every day. Not only in terms of employment figures, but also contribution to GDP. One of the things that I think it's important for us to touch on here is the fact that because they're voting on this bill, by no means... Does that say that this bill is exactly what's going to be passed in the end? And one of the things that is still on the table for this process is a full repeal of Obamacare 
without a replacement plan. Jack, what do you think that would potentially do to this growth in this booming sector of the economy? Well, it's going to mostly have negative effects. Um, essentially, you'd see a lot of the same effects. Sure. Full repeal would include rolling back expansion of Medicaid. So all the effects we talked about before would still occur. But the biggest difference is you would see the aspects of the Affordable Care Act that were kept for the better care reconciliation. You would see people under the age of 26 no longer allowed to be on their parents' insurance. So if these young people that you're talking about aren't necessarily able to stay on their parents' plan, it puts them in a pretty precarious situation for the healthcare industry. Because now you have these younger, healthier, cheaper-to-insure people put in a position where they don't necessarily have to get healthcare if they don't want it, and many of them are going to opt out of it, which is going to be pretty detrimental for some states that have increasingly polarized age groups. Now, this is going to have a pretty outsized impact on states like Texas, for example. According to Ibis World estimates, the number of adults age 65 and older in Texas has grown at an annualized rate of nearly 4.1% since 2012. Meanwhile, the population of the state of Texas is only growing at an annualized rate of 1.6% throughout that same period. So Texas is getting older, and as people get older, physician visits tend to rack up, and people of older age brackets just tend to be a little bit more costly to insure for insurers. Without having the mandate or the possibility that younger people are able to stay on insurance plans with their parents up into the age of 26 and putting more of these people out of the market, it's going to become a little bit harder for Texan insurers to subsidize more costly insurance patients with the healthier, younger people. The issue with this is that this is going to just exacerbate the fact that Texas is already outspending the rest of the country on average in total health expenditure. This could have been worse, though, if they had expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, which Texas was one of the 19 states that didn't. Meanwhile, when you look at a state like New York that did expand Medicaid, a full repeal of the Affordable Care Act or pulling back the expansion of Medicaid is going to have a particularly hard effect on states like New York. Yeah, in the state of New York, expansion in Medicaid grew by 43.6% with the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. But to look at the opposite side of this, the declining private insurance population under a full repeal or the Senate bill, that's not going to have as big of an effect on New York, a fairly liberal state, which will likely keep requirements for insurers to cover essential health benefits, whereas a more conservative state like Texas will likely not have those same requirements and will see a greater decline in private insurance. So Jack, it seems like a lot of what we talk about when we talk about either the implementation of BICRA or a full repeal of Obamacare is trying to parse what degree of damage is going to be leveled on an industry in the healthcare sector. Are there any industries that we can expect to see some outright positivity? Well, one industry that actually has not fared particularly well under the Affordable Care Act is the medical device manufacturing industry. The Affordable Care Act placed a 2.3% excise tax on medical devices. It's been pretty unanimously accepted that the 2.3% medical device excise tax has hindered growth for the medical device manufacturing industry. It's lowered profit margins for device manufacturers, and with that, it has limited innovation in those industries. So with smaller profit margins, these operators didn't have as much to put back into research and development. 
Exactly. When they have more ability to invest in new products, it benefits the entire healthcare sector. It often results in more advanced equipment that can make procedures more efficient. The Senate health care bill, one aspect of it is removing the 2.3% excise tax. That's been something that's pretty agreed upon within the Senate and Congress, both with Democrats and Republicans. So either with the Senate bill or a full repeal of the Affordable Care Act, we can sort of expect to see both profit margins and revenue grow again for the medical device manufacturing industry. Exactly. As those profit margins increase, there will be more innovation, which will lead to increased revenue for medical device manufacturers. So Jack, based on our conversation today, it seems like either the full repeal of the ACA or the implementation of BICRA are going to have some pretty wide-ranging impacts on the healthcare sector. It seems like there's a lot of potential to open up what insurers are allowed to offer, but it seems like so far, a lot of what we've talked about pertains to the rising of prices and the declining of the insured population. So it seems to me that either of these two things passing forward is going to be pretty negative on the whole for the healthcare sector. Can you tell me a little bit about what your take is on both of these options holistically for the healthcare sector? Well, with either of these options, overall, the healthcare sector is likely going to be hurt. We're going to see fewer people insured, and that's going to limit demand for healthcare services. Across the board, we're likely going to see revenue decline for healthcare providers. And as we said before, the healthcare sector is a huge portion of the U.S. economy. So as revenue declines for this sector, we're going to see some negative effects on the entire U.S. economy. And unless we can find a way to make up some of that gap with private insurance, it doesn't seem like this is a win for most healthcare sector industries. Absolutely. It seems like there's a lot to think about pertaining to the future of the healthcare sector. But Jack, thanks so much for coming in and talking a little bit about where you see the industries within that sector moving based on either repeal or the implementation of BICRA. Thanks, Taylor. For the Ibis World Podcast, I'm Taylor Palmer, signing off. So, Jack, it's good to have you back in the studio. We talked a couple weeks ago about the Better Care Reconciliation Act. And once the motion to proceed passed, there was assumptions on both sides that some sort of healthcare legislation was going to be passed afterward. That didn't quite happen. So, Jack, can you please do me and our listeners a favor and just tell us a little bit about where we are today in the American healthcare sector? Well, it's important to remember right now that at any time, legislation regarding healthcare could still come about. There's a recess right now, but in the future, that can still happen. There can still be votes. But in the meantime, what we really need to focus on with the future of healthcare is Donald Trump's plan to let Obamacare fail. And when you say let Obamacare fail, what exactly are you referring to? Well, that mainly refers to canceling the subsidies that support the healthcare exchanges. And the healthcare exchanges allow individuals to purchase insurance directly from health insurers instead of through employer-sponsored care or through government insurance. The exchanges are mainly supported by cost-sharing reductions, or CSRs, which are federal payments paid to health insurance companies that allow them to keep premiums low for individuals earning between 100% and 250% of the federal poverty line. So these are individuals who are in low-income brackets, but they are not able to qualify for Medicaid. Now, what would happen if these CSRs were taken away? 
Well, the CSRs keep those premiums low. So without the CSRs, the problem with the exchanges is that these plans have low profit margins. In some cases, health insurance companies could take a loss on these plans that they offer to low-income individuals. So having these cost-sharing reduction payments incentivizes insurance markets to cover these lower-income individuals. Exactly. Even with the CSRs in place, over the last year, several major health insurance companies have pulled out of the exchanges. For example, Aetna pulled out of the exchanges in several states over the last year, and actually just a few weeks ago announced that they are going to completely withdraw from the exchanges in 2018. Now, there have been problems with these individual marketplace exchanges for a while that have caused premiums to go up, and there have been a handful of insurance companies that have griped about some of the conditions they are in. This has been expedited by President Trump and his unwillingness to actually commit to making these CSRs. So not only will not having the CSRs make it more difficult for these insurance markets to maintain profitability in the individual exchange, the uncertainty centered around whether or not these payments will be made at all is bad for an insurance industry that relies a lot on certainty. So over the next few months, we know that the CSRs will be in effect. We know that we will have them in place through December. But beginning in January of 2018, we don't know for sure if they will be there or not. And when you look at a company like Aetna, they're not going to bother being in the exchanges if they don't know that the CSRs will be there. So instead of taking that risk, they've just chosen to stay out of the exchanges entirely. And what's going to happen with insurance companies that do decide to stay in the market? For the companies that will stay in the exchanges, they're most likely going to have to raise premiums for plans for those low-income people. Right now, the Congressional Budget Office is projecting those premiums to increase about 20% in 2018 alone. And that figure is supposed to jump up to 25% by 2020 as well. So this will have effects over the next few years. What we're really going to see if these premiums increase as much as they are is people opting for plans with less coverage that will carry lower premiums. People will go for the plans that have the lowest possible premium they can afford which will include the 10 essential health benefits. These benefits are still intact and still will be included in all plans, but the most bare bones plans will only cover those benefits. And even those plans are still going to carry higher premiums than they have in the past. And because of that, demand for healthcare services not covered by the 10 essential healthcare benefits is going to fall. Any healthcare procedure that is not completely necessary for people, they're going to see revenue declines. So right now, we're looking at a critical juncture with these cost-sharing reduction payments, and these CSRs seem to have a pretty wide-ranging impact on the healthcare sector at large. Exactly. The CSRs are what really keeps the Affordable Care Act working properly. Without them, we'll see declines throughout the sector. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Jack. My pleasure, Taylor. Thank you so much for joining us today on the IBIS World podcast, discussing the current state of the healthcare sector. The IBIS World podcast will provide updates on any major changes to the healthcare sector and provide the industry perspective therein. Please join us again soon. 